I have a prop today. I don't know if you can see that. What is that right there? It's a pencil, right? So today, this morning, I went looking for a pencil. And of all the pencils we have in my house with seven kids, not one has an eraser on it. They're all big pencils, just no eraser. Somehow the eraser does not quite do enough erasing, right? And they say this, they say that one pencil can draw a line 35 miles long. We're asking for a volunteer. So if you would stand up, we'll give you this. Run to Ashland. (laughs) So pencils, if you were to go buy pencils, how much is a pencil? If you went to Walmart, I'm not recommending that, but if you have to, go to Walmart. You can buy a 30-pack of Dixon Ticonderoga number two SAT certified test pencils for $5.97. Divide that by 30, you come up with 20 cents a piece. Or if you're super OCD, 19.9 cents. It's about 20 cents. Most of it's the wood. There's inside of a pencil, and we call it lead, but what is it actually? Graphite, okay? Graphite is about worthless. It's about a penny worth of graphite. So 1.35 grams of graphite, just gross, dirty graphite. It's carbon, that's all it is. But if you took that 1.35 grams of graphite and you squeezed it, 725,000 PSI, and then you heated it up 2,000 degrees, that graphite changes into a diamond. Same stuff. You don't add anything, you don't change anything, it's carbon. The only thing that's changed is the structure of the graphite changes and makes it into a diamond, right? So Elijah and I are actually working on a machine right now. (laughs) We will let you know, building paid for. It's quite impressive. One is this dirty, gross substance that gets all over your fingers. It's gross. They have to surround it with wood to keep it from making a mess of you. The other is this beautiful rock that you'd love to put on your wife's finger. In fact, it's seven carats. 1.35 grams is seven carats. A seven carat uncut diamond is worth between $80,000 and $1 million. Amazing. Just some pressure and heat. Well, you may not know this. We are carbon-based life forms. We're like graphite or diamonds, depending on something. So in our story we've been reading, we encountered this family, and I'm going to call them the graphite family. They're over here. And it fills the frame of Genesis for the final 20 chapters. It's a man named Jacob who has dad issues because of his dad and his favoritism and some bad things his dad did. And then he just photocopies all that bad stuff right into his family and he plays favorites and he has four wives and 12 kids and he actually, some of his kids, he uses them as a human shield to die so that he can protect his two favorite sons, right? And his favoritism and his, you know, really rejection of the 10 brothers breaks these boys, all of them. One of them becomes a arrogant sociopath Um, 10 of them become these cruel, calloused human traffickers. Two of them are sexual deviants, like one of the brothers sleeps with one of the four moms. 
So just messed up. We'll look at the other sexual deviant in our study. Yeah, that's awesome. Look forward to that one. Uh, they're bad. They're pathological liars. They're mass murderers. All of them go into the city. They kill everybody in the city. And then they steal everything. They're thieves as well, right? So when you look at this, they're very, very number two pencilish. They're graphite. They're gross. And yet it's these 12 men that God will say and use to become the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel who are then going to be a blessing to the entire world. And so you look at them at first and you're like, how can God do that? How can God take these broken people and transform them into a light to all the nations? Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you feel a little bit like this family, like a lot of graphite. Maybe you feel this way. And you wonder because you have desires and destinies that feel like God has put in your heart, but you keep messing them up and making a mess. How is God going to move me from this to a diamond? How's he going to do that? Well, we see this walked out by one of these brothers. His name is Judah. His name should ring a bell. Judah is the great, 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 great grandfather of King David, who is the great, 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 great grandfather of King Jesus. And it's through Judah that God says, I'm going to bring to pass the Genesis 12 Abrahamic covenant to bless all the nations of earth. And what we notice really quick about Judah is he's not a good dude, okay? So here's what I'm gonna do today. We're gonna look at Judah, the graphite man, and then we're gonna look at what God does to begin to move him to become something else. And then we'll apply it to our life, okay? So first, Judah in the raw, I'll call it. If you would, turn with me to Genesis 37. This is a snapshot of Judah in his raw graphiteness. Chapter 37, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, Joseph now is the favorite son. He's been given this coat of many colors. He goes out to check on his brothers. His brothers are all in Carhartts and orange construction vests. Joseph shows up in an Armani, in our, in an Armani suit, right? So it's very obvious he doesn't work. He doesn't have a shovel. He has a phone in his hand. That's all he does. So they're like, okay. They decide we're going to kill him. And he shows up. They stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. How's that for a transition? Let's kill our brother, okay? Take off his Armani coat, throw him in a pit. Hey, pass the ketchup. ketchup. What's that showing you right there? The callousness of these brothers. Like they're contemplating killing their brother. In the middle of it, they could care less. Hey, you got an extra pickle? Perfect, right? Bad dudes, graphite. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah, he's our guy. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it to kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Why waste the dude, you know, by just killing him? Let's make some money off this guy. 
So Judah, it's his idea to human traffic his own brother, right? Chapter 38. If you've read through Genesis, I hope you have. You'll come to chapter 38 and you'll say, why in the world is this in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? It is one of the grossest chapters in all of the Bible. Judah marries a Canaanite. He starts acting, hanging out with Canaanites. Uh, he raises such morally wicked children, God takes them out. I won't even read the first 11 verses. They're that bad, okay? I'll pick it up in verse 12. Now, everyone's gonna be like, well, let me read those verses. <laughs> All right, I'll just pick up the not so bad part of it. And it's bad. So chapter, 12, chapter 38, here's what it is. It is uh, Jerry Springer marries Jersey Shores and produces chapter 38. That's what this is. It's that bad. So you'll see, and this isn't the worst part. Verse 12, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law goes up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the road and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, if you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet, your cord, and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went her way and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. How's that for a story? You probably did not see this in Sunday school on the flannel graph. Probably went straight from chapter 37. We'll just pick it up in chapter 38, right? So here's what you have. Judah actually leaves his family, takes a Canaanite wife, starts hanging out with the Canaanites, and he starts to act like a Canaanite. Surprise, surprise. And the Canaanites believe this. They believe when you sheared your sheep, if you wanted your sheep to go make more sheep, which is the goal of a shepherd, so you make money. If you wanted that to happen, they believe this. You needed to go to the temple and visit a temple prostitute, and then your sheep would have more sheep. You wonder who invented that religion? Hmm, I got an idea. I'm gonna make a religion about this. Crazy, huh? So that's exactly what Judah does. He just starts acting out what he has seen and what he's around, okay? So he sees this woman and he wants her. He's so consumed with lust, when they start debating the price, he actually cuts her off. Fine, what do you want? She asks for, I want your bank account number. I want your social security number. I want your credit card. I want your debit card and your PIN number. He's like, fine, take it. He's so consumed with lust. Take it all. 
This is to a complete stranger, a prostitute on the road. He gives everything that identifies him, everything that makes him who he is. It's crazy, right? It'd be like this. A couple of weeks ago, I went to Ofa, the soccer thing downtown, to pick up my son, Elijah. I'm walking, I park, I walk by these two homeless guys, they were older, and as I'm walking by, I said, hey, and they say, hey, got any change? Luckily, I didn't have any. I said, no, I don't. And so they said, no problem. We take debit cards with pin numbers. <laughs> that's, that's awesome, buddy. No, right? Okay, it'd be like me just saying, okay, here you go, bud. That's what Judah does here. He's so consumed with lust, he cannot think anymore, and he gives everything to this, this he thinks, complete stranger. It's crazy. And this is gonna come back and bite him if you know the story. It's gonna come back and whack him hard, okay? Lust, that sin is the most expensive transaction ever, period. Nothing will cost you as much. I watched this TED talk, not a Christian talk at all. And the TED talk was simply this, the cost of adultery. And it wasn't like the emotional cost, there's emotional cost, friendship cost, family cost, marriage. There's all these other costs. They're just saying, if you're gonna write a check, how much does adultery cost you? It's astronomical. The numbers are unbelievable. It's unbelievable. It's the most expensive transaction you'll make. And Judah is gonna find that out, okay? So there's a glimpse of Judah in the raw. Graphite or diamond? I'm gonna say graphite at this point, right? He's, he's graphite. And how now is God going to change him? What we see is this process that happens where God moves him out of this kind of mentality through, a, through first a famine and then his response to it. And then the end of the story, I think, is the most brilliant ever, okay? So first, notice the famine. Skip forward, if you would. Chapter 42, verse 5. This is the pressure, right? To create a diamond, you gotta have pressure. Here's the pressure God applies in this situation. There's a famine. Verse five, chapter 42. Thus, the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. I don't think anyone in here, I could be wrong, has ever experienced what these brothers experience, where they're at a table and there's no food and they can't feed their spouses and they can't feed their kids and they're starving to death. I don't think we've faced that kind of pressure. Maybe you have, but it doesn't happen a lot today, thankfully. So these brothers are now facing this intense pressure. What are we gonna do? The Bible asks us to recalibrate the way we look at famines in hard times. And it asks us to do this. It asks us to see a goal. So if you look at Romans chapter five, Paul says this. It's verses three through five. Paul says, I glory in suffering. And he suffered. Read 2 Corinthians 11. It's just a list goes on and on of his difficulty. I glory in suffering because suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope makes it so that you're not ashamed and so that the love of God is spread abroad to all people. He saw an end. Or James, 
James actually begins his letter with suffering. He says, hi, and he's like, hey, brothers, count it all joy when you fall into hard times, knowing that the trying of your faith produces patience. But let patience have her perfect work that you might be complete, entire, lacking nothing. This world with its brokenness and sin like a cancer, what it does to the human is this, it actually eats away at what we're supposed to be. And James would say, the way that's repaired is through the trine of your faith and patience producing this fruit that repairs you brilliantly. That's James. My favorite though is Jeremiah. Jeremiah, tough times, he starts complaining to God. God, really? I didn't want this job. That's what he really says. I didn't want to be a prophet. Why all this hard stuff? So God answers him. It's Jeremiah 12, verse five. He says this, Jeremiah, if the footmen have wearied you, how will you ever run with horses? I love that one. Jeremiah, I have a goal for you that's so grand, you wouldn't believe it. I have a goal that you do something that no one else could ever do. I want you to actually run as fast as a horse does. I want you to be a Pony Express without the horse. That's what I want for you. But if you can't just take a little bit of this right now, you will never get to where I want you to be. The Bible calls us to recalibrate our thinking on hard times. Matt, that scares me. I know it is scary. I would never say to somebody, jump in a famine or have cancer or go through sickness or go through bankruptcy. I'd never say, hey, do that. But here's what I know. I love diamonds and you don't get diamonds at Disneyland. It takes this kind of stuff. It takes pressure to get them. And here's what we can trust. If you're reading through the Bible with us right now, we're in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is a brilliant book. And Hebrews 12, there's this section where I, in my mind, I just title it, God knows how to grow up humans. It's verses four to 14. And there you see this, that God is the one that orchestrates events to grow us up. And the word used in verse 11, we say trained, it's where we get the word gymnasium. God puts us through a gymnasium, a training to grow us up. Have you ever trained for something? Really trained for something? Most people, men, I'll say, we don't train, we work out. Work out means this, do some curls and some bench press because I want big guns and pectoral muscles. Training is something totally different. Training is where you do the same thing over and over and over and over again until you actually react without thinking. So it's the baseball player that looks at the same curveball 10,000 times so that when he sees that curveball in a game, he does not have to think, what should I do? His body just responds. It's the boxer who looks at that same right jab thousands of times. Why? So that when the right jab is coming at him, he doesn't think about, hey, what should I do about that? It's, he just responds. That's training. It's where whatever you're training to do, it's no longer, I'm trying to think about what this thing is. It's rather, I become this. I become a boxer. I become a baseball player. It'd be like Myron, my son. Uh, he turned four, we bought him a bicycle this summer and I started training him on how to ride a bike. If you train a child on riding a bike, it begins with you running alongside them, right? And you're shouting these instructions at him, these rules at him, pedal 
little bit faster. Don't look at me, look at the road. Don't look at the tire, look at the road. Don't look at mom, look at the road. Keep looking at the road, just look at the road, right? You've got all these, you're just shouting, 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 shouting. And then one day, here's what happens. He just takes off and rides. And I don't have to shout the rules at him. I don't have to be there next to him telling him what to do anymore because it's become second nature. Riding a bike is second nature. Do you know that's the goal with every Christian? That God's goal with you is not to shout laws into you, all these laws, 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 laws. The goal is that it's written on your heart and it becomes who you are. And now that you are something, you respond correctly. You're not gritted teeth, religion. All right, fine. I'll love my neighbor as myself, even though I want to shoot him. It's, oh, I have a genuine love for my neighbor. I have a genuine love even for my enemy because it's who I've become. It's not, ah, oh, okay, I gotta be generous. It's, wow, I get to be generous. It's not, ah, oh, okay, I'll rejoice in this day even though I hate it. It's, wow, I found joy in my day. It's the word becomes flesh. It's incarnational. That's God's goal. That's what God wants. And God trains us to become that. And it takes so often a famine to begin the process, a hard time begin the process. That's why Paul and James both say, when we see hard times coming, we're happy because we know change is coming. Hard's not bad. Hard can actually be good. So that's what we see. And it's the hardness of this famine that drives this family out of the dirt to the diamonds of reconciliation and redemption. It took the famine to do that. All right, that's the first thing. There's the heat. Now look at Judah's response. Here's what we need to do. Skip forward to verse 21, same chapter, Genesis 42, 21. They've gone down to Egypt. They've met Joseph. They do not know he's Joseph. They don't know anything about him. They call him the man over and over or the stern, angry man. So they tell their dad he was stern and angry with us. So they meet the man. They don't like him. Doesn't appear that he likes them. Accuses them of being spies, really roughly treated. And this is what they say, verse 21. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Genesis 42, 21. So famine happens, crushing, hard. In the midst of this famine, up bubbles inside of them this understanding that hey, we're guilty. I think it's often the famine or difficulty that will bubble up in us the impurities that need to, be, need to get out of us. That's what happens to them right here. Notice, they don't blame their dad. Well, we had never sold him into slavery if our dad hadn't played favorites. They didn't play the victim. They didn't make excuses. They didn't say, well, the economy was bad, so I had to do it. They didn't do any of that. They say, we are guilty. If you never declare your guilt, you'll never get the diamonds. 1 John 1, 9, Jesus, or John says about Jesus, if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful to forgive us, but there's another level, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Whatever that impurity was, whatever that dirt was, that God needs to get out to change us. When we confess, 
that gets cleansed. I deal with a lot of people, they do what I call kind of confess. Okay, yeah, I did that, but it's because my wife. Bro, that's not confession. Yeah, I did that, but it's because my boss. That's not confession. Oh yeah, you know, I tried marijuana, but my, it was because my friends. What'd they do to you? They hold you down, put a joint in your mouth and give you CPR? I mean, come on, bud. And I always tell them this, no, 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 no. You chose what you most wanted to do. Looking at all your given options, you looked at them and you chose what you most wanted to do. That's being really honest with yourself. Oh, Matt, that's not true because I got robbed a couple years ago and you know, I did not want to give him money and I did. No, of all the options you had, be shot, be stabbed, get in a fight, get run over, or give him two bucks. You chose what you most wanted of your options. When you get to that point, when you get to that point where you say, no, okay, there might be extenuating circumstances, but ultimately, of all the choices I had, I chose this one, and I'm guilty. That's when you begin to give God the permission to transform you. And most people, here's what I found, don't know how to confess. They do the kind of confess, the victimhood confess, the blaming confess. They don't do the hardcore, I am guilty. And because of that, they stayed mired in this mud and grossness because they've never been set free from it. And the destiny that God has, the diamond destiny that God has for you gets derailed because you just won't admit you're guilty. You don't do 1 John 1, 9. If you struggle with confession, read Psalm, 90, Psalm 51. Brilliant. Psalm 51 is David, after all of his sins, just goes down what it means to confess. It is a manual on confession and restoration. Brilliant. Read that. That's confession. So, here the boys get together. Judah among them confesses. This famine brought it out. Then number two, his response is he'll pay the price. Skip forward to chapter 43. I'll fill in the details after I read the text. He'll pay the price. Judah said to Israel, his dad, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame forever. So now Judah pops up, and here's the situation. Twice these boys had gone out, lost one of their dad's sons, and come back with more money. Twice that's happened. And so Jacob is like, you're not taking another one of my sons. You guys are crazy. And I'm sure they said they were sorry. And I'm sure they've apologized and all that kind of stuff. But Jacob at this point is like, no, no more. No more. I don't care that you've said you're sorry. You haven't showed me that I can trust you. I think Christians, because of grace and because of maybe the way we've been taught, we get forgiveness and apologies wrong. And I hear people say this to me, well, I said I was sorry to him. I said I was sorry to her. Why can't we just get over it? In that instance, I know you've got it wrong. You've got it wrong. That's not Christianity. 
That's Charlie Brown. Here's what I mean. You know the cartoon. Lucy holding the football, telling Charlie Brown to kick the football. Charlie Brown's like, you'll move the football again. No, I promise, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do it last time. I slipped. No, I'm sorry. And so what does Charlie Brown do? Tries to kick the football. And what does Lucy do? Moves it out of the way, time after time after time after again, right? She has borderline personality disorder. Unhealthy, right? And it, it actually, the first time it happened was 1966. Pretty much every year from there, football season, that's happening. Unhealthy. That's not Christianity. Christianity's not, no, you keep just trying to kick the football. Uh-uh. Forgiveness is something the victim can offer, but reconciliation or trust is something the perpetrator has to earn. That you don't just be like, oh, okay, I guess it's all good, all right, whatever. No. Jacob's like, no. And so Judah stands up and says, I get that, and I will pay the price. I will do whatever is necessary. I know when a man or a woman has truly confessed their sin, truly understood what it means to be guilty, when they say what Judah says right here, I'll pay whatever price is necessary. I realize that trust has been violated, and the only way for it to be repaired is for it to be repaid, and I'll repay it with time and effort and actions. I'll do whatever is necessary to make this right. And I've had crazy things, like a spouse that gambled away his family and put them into bad finances, getting mad at a wife that won't sign for a credit card for him. And I say, no, but I said I was sorry. Yeah, good. You got to now rebuild trust because it's not there. Trust and forgiveness are two different things. Forgiveness is given by the victim. Trust must be earned by the perpetrator. So Judah knows that. I will pay the price. I'll do whatever is necessary. I take full responsibility, I'll pay. That to me is the mark when I know someone's confessed. And here's what's brilliant. So now the famine forces this confession, reconciliation. Now, lastly, Judah becomes part of the story. So chapter 44, I'll summarize it really quick for you. They go down. Benjamin, the youngest brother, goes with them, all 11 brothers. They meet Joseph. They do not know it's Joseph. They have a meal. They're like, wow, Joseph's nice to us. Or the man, the cruel man, the cruel man was nice to us. In the morning, they're sent out. They're like really stoked. Hey, we came down here. Things worked out pretty good. The man was kind to us. They're heading home. When all of a sudden, the Egyptian army comes racing out on horses and surrounds them and stops them. And the Chief of the guard gets off his chariot and says, one of you stole my master's cup. And they're like, no, no, we didn't, no way. We'd never do that. And so they begin to check from the oldest to the youngest. And they go through all 10 brothers, the older brothers, and there's no cup. And so they must have been sighing a sigh of relief. Ben would never do that. They open up Ben's sack and guess what they find? Joseph's cup. They find it. So they bring them all back into the palace. And here's what happens. Here's what Joseph says. It's verse 17, chapter 44. Joseph, he's still in disguise. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. 
Here's what Joseph says. Leave this son, the new favorite son of your dad. Leave him here as a slave and you can go in peace, you 10 brothers. Does that sound like a familiar story? It's exactly chapter 37. You can get rid of this favorite son, you 10 brothers, you can get rid of this favorite son and go up in peace. It's amazing. Only God could orchestrate events in such a way that these guys are put in the exact same test for a second time. It's amazing to me. Did you ever have a teacher that allowed you to retake a test you flunked? If you did, they were godly. It's right here. If, right? I never had a teacher like that. You get an F, you stick with it. He gives a retest. You can retake this test. Boys, how are you going to respond this time? And Judah, who we know, has failed every test he's taken. Look what he does. It's verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. Out of the 10 brothers, it's Judah. Chapter 37, Judah, who sold his brother into slavery. Chapter 38, Judah, who's just a mess, raises wicked sons, uh, goes into prostitutes, just wicked dude. Here, because of a famine, confession, and paying the price, Judah stands up and he begins to talk to this guy. He doesn't know who he is. And he says, listen, I have a dad at home. And my dad, who had played favorites with him, that same dad that had used Judah as a human shield to protect his two favorites, that same dad that Judah could have had all kinds of issues with, that same dad, Judah says, this would break his heart. This would break his heart. And I love my dad too much to allow his heart to be broke like that. And so then Judah says, verse 33, now therefore, please let your servant Remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. Let me substitute. Take me instead. The same brother who had said, let's sell this brother into slavery. The same brother now years later, 22 years later, says, now put me in slavery and let the favorite son go home to my dad because I love him too much. Isn't that amazing? What does this story remind you of? You have a boy who's, it appears, committed a crime, stolen the cup, gonna be in slavery, and then you have an elder brother saying, I'll take his place. Does that sound like a story? It should sound like Jesus because Jesus is called our elder brother. And Jesus says to you and me who have committed crimes, but a lot like graphite-ish, he said, let me take their place. Let me pay for their crime. Take me instead, right? Judah now becomes this glimpse of something brilliant and amazing. I call it the story. This is the story. This is the story we long for, right? There's no greater story. I believe the human heart, and I'm not the guy that invented this, is tuned to resonate with this kind of story. Yes, heroes, substitution. In fact, a guy by the name of J.R.R. Tolkien, 
author of Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, had a good friend who was a staunch atheist, his name, C.S. Lewis, who was just like, how can you guys possibly believe in God? I mean, we're professors. And they were, they're professors. Lewis was a professor of medieval literature at Oxford and Cambridge. You look up the word smart, his picture is there. Brilliant. It's like, I can't believe this. Like it was said of Lewis at that stage that um, he hated God because he didn't exist. Which is like, what? <laughs> Doesn't make sense. And so Tolkien begins to talk to him about these things. And finally, it was Tolkien that used this. He said, Lewis, you know all these stories. You know literature. You know the stories of the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians. And you know the stories of the Celtics. You know the stories of the people in China and the Orient. And he says this, all those myths, the reason why we still have them is because they resonate in the heart. They hit the tuning fork and they tell the same story, the story. So he went through them like Hercules. We all want a champion who's stronger than us, who can defend us and save us. That's Hercules. Beauty and the Beast. We all know if we could face unconditional love and unrivaled beauty, that it would, it would melt the graphite into us and turn us into diamonds. We become beautiful if we just face that. The story of Peter Pan. We all want to go to a place where we never die, where we live forever. You know why? Because in every human heart, there's an echo of Eden where we know we are designed to live and not to die. And that echoes in us. The Lion King. That there's a usurper on the throne right now and he has cast the whole world into destruction and disaster and chaos and starvation. But if the right king returns and rules, we'll have peace and justice again. That's the true story, right? Hunger Games, four or five years ago, whenever it was. Wildly popular. You know why? It begins with that story. The weak sister is chosen and she would be slaughtered in the games. And what happens? The strong, powerful, older sister says, take me instead. Substitution, right? That's the story. So Lewis now is going through all of the stories he knew and he began to see, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the story goes that one day he got on a motorcycle to go to the zoo as an unbeliever. And when he got off the motorcycle, he was a believer. And many people since have ridden motorcycles and prayed that God would save them. <laughs> it's great evangelism. Because it's the story. So you have Judah who is contributing to just yuck. The story he's writing is gross. It's hurting. It's harmful. It's disgusting. And then famine and confession and reconciliation. Now he begins to write the story. I think the proof that you have been transformed from graphite to diamonds is you begin to contribute to the story. You begin to look like Jesus, which is our goal. Romans 8, 28 and 29. The goal for you and me is to have Christ's nature put into us, trained, no doubt, takes time, absolutely, so that we begin to respond like he does. And that the story we write is this story. We begin to say, like Jesus, I didn't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give my life as a ransom for many. Where we begin to say like Jesus, Philippians chapter two, that Jesus who thought it not robbery to be one with God made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. You say, that's what I'm doing. That's what you say. It's better to lose your life for his sake than try to find it. That's exactly what Judah does. And then look at the response to Joseph. Flip over one little chapter. The the next phrase, after Judah does this, after Judah gives an example of Jesus, look at Joseph's response. Chapter 45, verse one. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Judah authors the story, take me, not Benjamin. Substitute me. When Joseph hears that, he's broken. The one that could have been bitter, the one that could have thrown them in prison, the one that had every right to say, you guys are dirtbags, you guys are graphite. When Judah acts like Jesus, he's broken. And there's reconciliation. And the family is put back together. When you act like Jesus, that's what happens to people. You can't argue with someone acting like Jesus. You can argue with people talking about Jesus, no doubt. Preaching Jesus, totally. But you cannot argue when someone lives like Jesus. That's what happens to Joseph right here. He's broken. And right now, I know a lot of us are going to Christmas gatherings. And maybe at that Christmas gathering, there's still bad blood between brothers, between family, between whatever. The way that that is broken is when we go in there saying, I'm gonna model Jesus. Help it to be second nature to me. Help me to respond like you would. Jesus, help me to do that today. And so we get to come to the table and receive strength to do that today. At the table today, here's what I would suggest. Maybe some of you are in a famine, difficulty, When you eat and you drink, remember all that Jesus did for you and trust his hand in training you. Maybe for some of us, when you eat and you drink, you need some confession time because maybe there's some junk that you have blamed on other people or you've made excuses for or circumstances or whatever it is and you need to just say, No, I did that, and I don't want to do that anymore. Cleanse me from that. And that's the work that Jesus does for us. And maybe others, you've been demanding apology, you've been demanding reconciliation as the perpetrator when it's not your right. And you need to do the great work of rebuilding trust with people. So you say, strengthen me to do that. Help me to be willing to pay that price. And for all of us, my hope is this. As you eat and you drink, you say, I wanna contribute to the story. Not 
the raw, bad story of chapter 37 and 38, which we've all done, I wanna write this story because that's a better story. Help me to write the story. And so you eat and you drink of strength so that his nature becomes your nature. That you have his mind and you respond like Jesus does. And it's brilliant. And grants pass, your work, your family is broken and blessed by it. So Father, this day, we thank you for the unspeakable gift of your son. We do ask collectively for forgiveness for our chapters 37 and 38. Or lust, or anger, or vengeance, or bitterness has caused us to write dirty, gross stories. Forgive us. And we pray as we partake in you this day, we ask that what we write this week and this month would make you beautiful. We pray even as the word says that as we keep our eyes fixed on you, we are metamorphosized into the same image by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that your spirit would come upon us in this moment and empower us to write the good story. We ask this in your son's name, amen.